Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is Hugh Thomas founder of Ugly. Ugly is a refreshingly honest sparkling water in a can. No sugar, no calories, no sodium, no sweeteners. We discuss his background and how working at Vitacoco impacted him to found Ugly, why he went retail from day one, and his expansion strategy and why being in two markets is sort of like running two different companies. Without further ado, here's Hugh. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's really nice to chat. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Really excited to have a chat. So let's talk about the beginning. What was your initial attraction to the food and beverage world? It's a great question. Obviously, I'm uh, from the UK, so the accent isn't put on, but now I live in the US. But always been passionate about food and beverage. And then when I was a college student, I actually got a job working for vitamin water. This is a long time ago now, sadly, which makes me feel old. But about a decade ago, I was the guy on campus with uh, an apartment full of uh, sacks and sacks of vitamin water cases. And we actually built a sofa out of it. We had so much in my in my student house. So yeah, I was taking those drinks to parties, festivals, after sports events and in particular just i just fell in love with the way that you know everybody eats and drinks everybody has multiple beverages multiple food occasions a day and everybody has an opinion and people like it or they don't like it and i fell in love with that and i fell in love with the brands in particular and how brands can take you to so many interesting places certainly in beverage i could you know go to a gig i could you know drop product off after a sports event and you can just meet consumers in so many interesting places i just became hooked so i became hooked with brands Brands, and in particular, beverage after a while. And when people hold a beverage in their hands, it says so much about them. When they Instagram a beverage, when they post it, there's just something about it that more than other CPG categories, from my point of view, there's something that really special about it in the way that what you drink says a lot about who you are. And I just fell in love with, fell in love with that. And then leaving university, I actually got a job on a, my first job, I was like, well, I want to start my own business one day. That was always a name, but I kind of need to learn the ropes. So I went to work in big CPG. So I went to work for Heinz and worked on Heinz Ketchup and then Heinz Baked Beans, which is a a national staple in the UK. I think it's the the second product with the second highest penetration in the UK behind toilet paper. Surprisingly, toilet paper doesn't have 100% penetration. So who knows what people are using out there. But I remember Baked Beans was like in 95% plus of households in the UK. So I got the chance to work on these amazing 100-year-old brands with, you know, long legacies and brand guidelines that were were drawn up and then from there decided to move into a startup to learn the ropes on that too, which is what took me to Vitacoco. But it's been a journey and I'm very lucky to have worked at a big historic food company that's been around for 100 plus years and then also worked at a startup and now started my own business too. So I kind of went in reverse and tried... I guess when I worked at Heinz as a grad, I was like, why is there so much process? Why is there so much bureaucracy here? And then I started a startup and I've tried to reintroduce it all back to stop the chaos. So kind of experienced both sides of it at this point. It's amazing. Well, I didn't work for Vitamin Water when I was in college, but I share your love for Vitamin Water because I used to go 
to the convenience store down the street and try to barter or bargain rather because I wanted to buy cases of vitamin water but wanted a discount because I was buying so much. I was a, I was a complete, complete, utter addict. That is absolutely for sure. What was cool about it is I was, you know, I'm from a small town called Worcester in the Midlands in the UK. So I'm not from London, even though I did live there. So I was, you know, from there, I was studying at a, ne- a nearby university and I was working on the brand that was working with 50 Cent and doing all this US brand building. And I was kind of really opened my eyes at like 17, 18 to how brands were built in the US. And so I've always, you know, yes, I was in the middle of the UK in a rural British town, but I was looking at this country going, wow, that's where brands are really built. I want to get there one day. So kind of that brand I have a lot to thank for in terms of showing me that passion and showing me how those teams and brands were operated. And when you combine 50 Cent and those ad campaigns they did with Shaquille O'Neal and things like that, I was like, wow, this is creative, the design, the colors, the marketing. I was like, this is what I want to do. And I think that's when I fell in love with it. It's amazing. That's super, super cool. I know after you worked at Vitacoco and was there for, for quite a while. Talk to me about some of the early days since you were very impactful with growing it in Europe and in different parts of the world. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to join Vitacoco in the, I guess, European, Middle Eastern, African office or whatever. It ended up becoming pretty much everywhere in that kind of part of the globe. It was in the kind of the early employees there, uh, which is where I met my co-founder, Joe. Uh, so he was already there. So there were four or five of us at that point. Business was set up in London in a tiny office and it was run as a startup despite that being a, a New York business. So, you know, we were doing everything. We were introducing people in the UK to coconut water for the first time. And if you've had coconut water, I'm sure which many listeners have, it's an acquired taste the first time you try it. So I was there for many of those moments. But I know I was in my early 20s. I was given a ton of responsibility and really got involved with everything. I, you know, drove the truck, I did demos, I then set up the demo program. We did an advertising campaign with Rihanna music festivals, launching in different markets. We launched in about 40 markets, ultimately, you know, understanding how a brand plays out in different cultures, different marketplaces, and just thrown in the deep end. And then lucky enough to, to spend time meeting the US team as well, and just seeing how that was done and ultimately falling in love with the way US businesses build consumer brands and looking at the founders of Vitacoco and going, cool, I kind of want that lifestyle one day. I want to build what they've built. And after you've worked somewhere like that, you just become hooked to a, I guess, the team environment. It's as close to a sports environment, I think, as you could get in the professional work environment, working in beverage and knew that's what I wanted to do. And when when Vitacoco got to a certain scale, it, it was time to leave for me to progress. And starting my own business was the only logical step after that. Totally, totally make sense. I'd say when you were thinking about then, I think we can certainly feel your passion for beverage. Certainly with all these different brands that we're talking about, Vita Coco, Vita Water. How did you think about what type of beverage company that you wanted and why did you focus on sparkling water? Yeah. So obviously working at Vita Coco, you talk there about, you know, what makes it such a special brand and you look at the packaging, the product functionality, the health benefits of it, but even it translated to everything. The office had palm trees, you know, it had a hammock in the office. So there's everything about it, the type of people who work there, everything becomes the brand. And so we, we really wanted to create a brand that could change the way people eat and drink. So there was something about creating a, a global brand as well, having worked on one. We didn't want to just be a British company. We didn't want to just focus there. We always had ambitions to, to expand. And so th- that's kind of in forms what that, I guess, motivation was. But then 
really we were looking for a problem to solve. And we'd been working in beverage for a while. We knew that consumers were going, actually, I don't want to drink a sports drink. I'll drink coconut water instead. Uh, I don't want to drink a juice. I'll drink something lower in sugar. But ultimately, Joe and I were looking at the stats and we were going, wow, soda is huge. It is consumed all around the world in so many markets. The per capita consumption in you know the US, the UK, places like Mexico is just insane. And we recognized that as much as healthier beverage and healthy food and drink is growing, so much of it is expensive and not accessible to real kind of mainstream consumers. And I think that's where Joe and I became really passionate is about breaking the status quo and trying to start a business that could take on a really big problem, which was soda consumption. Um, and when people consume, you know, full sugar soda, you know, you're taking on you know, 45 grams of soda in as long as it takes to drink a can, there's no fiber, you're not digesting anything, hits your pancreas, affects your insulin levels. And there are millions and millions of consumption occasions a day, if not, a, you know, if not an hour. And we just thought that was something that, you know, really big and challenging and worth taking on. But we wanted to do it in a way that was fun and accessible and affordable. And so if you reverse engineer soda, which is kind of the equation we did, because in the UK, there was no LaCroix or anything like that for us to go, oh, maybe we'll do that. There wasn't this at the time. Take all the bad stuff out of soda, you essentially get flavored sparkling water. It's kind of where we got to. We were like, "How? Oh, well, let's make it fun. Let's make it something that tastes great, people want to buy, and that isn't going to break the bank if you're a low middle income family that's trying to make some healthier changes. And that's ultimately what the driver is for us is to make healthier beverages an easier choice for people to make. That's awesome. I really, really appreciate that story in trying to, you know, promote also people to be more conscious about their choices in terms of what they're making and offer, you know, ugly as a substitute and something that's a healthier product. On the brand side of things, how did you decide on the name ugly? And how did, you know, your past learnings from maybe how U.S. companies create and scale looking at, you know, the vitamin waters of the world and your learnings from that experience, how did that affect starting your company? Just how do you think about your brand more on a global scale rather than just, you know, as you said before, we don't want to be just a British brand. Yeah, I think it reflects to, you know, my opinion on consumer in general is that so many consumer brands are built with that kind of New York, California, London mindset and price point and aesthetic. And my personal opinion is, is that, you know, there's 350 million plus people in America, you know, the UK, 70 million people, I think 60% of Americans are obese at this point in time. So I'm going, you know, there's a huge segment of the market that's, that's not served. And so when it comes to branding and graphics and visuals and names, we wanted to create something that could really speak to as many people as possible and really democratize sparkling water. It doesn't have to be something bougie, something expensive, something fancy. It should be something that, you know, any soda drinker can easily make that switch. And so when it came to the branding, you know, we were two, two guys in our early 20s. Probably the creativity was lubricated by a couple of beers in the pub. But we wanted to we wanted to do something that was that would disrupt the status quo and we wanted to do something that a big company couldn't. And so so around the time when we're coming up with the brand, you had all these social things changing as well. We had in the UK we had Brexit. I mean in the US you had the last president changing. Obviously we're changing again. So kind of like four, four or five years ago when this was happening. You had the whole idea of fake news and alternative facts coming to the fore. And we felt there was a lot of that in food and beverage and a lot of these big food and beverage companies companies promising one thing in their advertising for 100 years, smiling, happy people, sponsoring sporting events, you name it. 
But actually, when you turn around the can or drink the product, it doesn't deliver any of that. So we, we felt like we wanted to tell the truth. And there's a line from George Orwell in 1984, which is, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And we got inspired by that idea of telling the truth and revolution, and hence the ugly truth and telling the ugly truth. And then ugly was super easy, surprisingly, to trademark. <laughs> so we managed to get all the domains, all the handles, all the trademarks without any resistance, really. And that's kind of where it was. We had a list of names. And when you saw it on there and you saw what it stood for, it just made us feel something. And I think the great brands make you feel something when they stand out. And then we went into that design process and took the same approach of being brave and pushing things beyond any sort of aesthetic that exists. Never took any inspiration from anything inside the category when we were building it. It's all purely from our own internal briefs, working with the designers on stuff that's really kind of pushing pushing the boundaries. And so hopefully that's reflected in the design you can see. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of how you actually came up with the name. And also, I love that you threw in there a George Orwell quote. That's just fantastic. Now, I guess the difficulty in creating you know, a healthier beverage is, of course, I guess, factoring in how to make it healthier, but also taste good. Love to just hear about those early days about how you approach ingredients, your supply chain, and overall your product is because I'd imagine it's quite a delicate balance. Yeah, I mean, the very early days of Ugly, right? I have to clarify, Ugly isn't some um, business school graduates starting with like, I mean, you know, I was 23, thought I know what I was doing. Joe is the same. We started emailing factories with our like Google Mail or Hotmail addresses or whatever embarrassing email address I had at the time. And so we weren't getting responses until we actually just set up, you know, domain named emails for some random holding company name that we came up with. I think it was Black Pig Inc. or something like that. And I, we were both co-CEOs of that. And then people start responding. They're like, well, maybe we'll, we'll take these guys' calls. So like very early on, we're just going, you know, it's almost Googling how do you make a beverage and finding flavor suppliers and working out exactly what a flavor is or what the product is or how you make it without preservatives. And for a lot of factories, certainly in the UK at the time, they'd never made anything as natural in a can as, as we were producing. So there was a bit of resistance and we had, to, we had to work with, you know, we've ended up working with multiple suppliers now and the suppliers we work with now initially said no to us. So we've kind of worked our way through um, in the US now. We have production here on both, you know, multiple coasts, multiple facilities. But day one, it was pretty sketchy and it was really a case of testing and learning. And I think the big advice I always say to people is, you know, if you're connected with someone that can't, says they can't help you, ask them if they know someone who can. And I generally believe all of our connections on that led us to the right vendors, suppliers, factories, water sources. And that's eventually through testing and improving. We're always changing our flavors, always improving, always listening to our consumers. We've eventually got to where we are now today with a product we think tastes great, has great credentials from a nutritional point of view as well. So it's been a long road to this point. Thanks so much for taking us through it. It's always fun hearing about those early days, especially I love that how manufacturers then started taking you seriously with that company name. I'm also curious, you know, I know we spoke about this before, but what I find interesting about Ugly as well is you were omni-channel from like day one. And I would love to know because, you know, right now, I guess part of the formula is since the DTC channel is so convenient and easy to launch a brand on DTC that folks are, you know, going to Omnichannel later because it's hard to get, you know, go into Target day one or go into retail day one. I'd love to know how you approach retail from the very beginning. So yeah, as you say, we were Omnichannel from day one. So we've been on Shopify for what, four or five years at this point. And that was really born out of... Uh... 
having a strong social media presence as a small business, having an Instagram account kind of what, 2016 and having a lot of followers and people messaging us, finding us, but they could have been anywhere in the UK. We had someone in you know, Northern Scotland saying, what's my nearest retailer? You look at the map, there isn't a retailer for like 50 miles, right? And so initially that was like, well, how do we get product to these people? How do we satisfy the demand from the internet? And that's why plugging in direct to consumer made sense for us. So now knowing what we know now, there's a playbook to roll out, but we kind of stumbled across the playbook, if that makes sense. And because our community was asking for the product in different places. So that's how we approach that. And, and then retail has always been a case for us of, you know, proving out different accounts and then rolling it out from there. In the UK, obviously, it's a much smaller place in the US. So you pick the region. We started in London. We launched into Selfridges, the big departments. We did demos in that store. We made sure people were trying it, made sure it looked great on shelf. We made sure we understood how it was selling, what the product was doing. Did people like the taste? Did they like the design? Listening to feedback. We must have been in there every day for two months, learning, listening, making sure the rate of sale was good. And then we took that story to Whole Foods, which in the UK is nine stores. And we landed Whole Foods. And then we did the same again in nine Whole Foods. So I think between our first three, four team members and interns, we spent one of us was in Whole Foods every single day for a whole year, building displays doing demos, learning. And then we got noticed by both investors and by larger retailers and things started to snowball from there. So that was how we initially approached it. And then we moved to the US. It's the same. It's been about what they say, you can't eat an elephant at once. You have to divide it into parts. Bite-sized chunks with the US. So understanding where we want to go regionally, what retailers we want to go after, and then being a lot more, have a lot more precision to that. So yeah, that's kind of how we've approached it. Uh, really trying to focus on building momentum like a snowball is how we've approached it with direct to consumer and, and also Amazon and other marketplaces on top of that to support it now, which certainly in the last 12 months with coronavirus have become even more important than they were before. And they were already very important to our business. So it's kind of how we've approached retail. No, that's that's really helpful. You know, talk to me a little bit about like, you know, COVID because right now you aren't able to do, you know, in-store demos and a lot of brands are suffering because of that in terms of trying new products. Are there some like creative strategies that you've done for folks that maybe hadn't experienced ugly in store that to some ways to get them to buy or be more comfortable with their purchase? Yeah. So, I mean, we've obviously done a lot more in digital this year. And I think one of the, th one of the projects that's been really exciting for us is just before coronavirus last year, we were working on some new flavors and new concepts and we tried so many great ones. And um, when coronavirus hit, we thought, well, how can we bring more engagement on a monthly basis to our fans and work with our fans to help create the future of the range? And so we actually decided to, to create our, our flavor lab ultimately and take it to consumers' homes if they couldn't leave. So we started launching a monthly limited edition ugly flavor every month. We did a survey with our fans. They told us what they wanted and we started making them. So every month since coronavirus started, we've launched a new flavor direct-to-consumer only. We've launched things like Cherry Cola, Marshmallow, Dr. Ugly, Orange Soda. We launched our root beer today. So you can see that on uglydrinks.com now. And it's just been great because so many people have, you know, are, are stuck at home, want to try something new, want to engage in our brand, want to help us develop the next flavor or the next kind of range. It's been a really exciting way of getting people involved without meeting them in person. So we send those shoppers a survey after they've bought the product. They tell us what they liked, what they didn't like, and then 
we're ultimately able to then go, okay, well, the four or five of those flavors performed really well. Why don't we potentially take those to, to stores and retailers in the future? So it's become a really nice way of us working with our community and engage with our fans without being in store, without being able to meet them in person. And the open rates and the response rates we get on, on those emails in particular are remarkable. Like it's way more than I ever thought we'd get, but people are very passionate about being involved in developing what we do next. Some of the ideas are so crazy. I don't know if we'll ever be able to do them, but some of them are pure genius. And I think certainly our pipeline for this year is super exciting with the creativity of, of our fans, which, you know, maybe that would never have happened without coronavirus. So we were able to adapt and I'm really proud of proud of that campaign because it's given us a, a really exciting platform to, to test and learn going forward. Totally, totally. And I think that on the, the crazy ideas part, I think that it's always important to have crazy ideas or let those, you know, ideate on those because then, you know, some of like the real reality ideas might actually come into play. So critical a part of that. You know, I know we spoke before about how you feel like you're managing almost two businesses, one in the US and one in Britain, maybe. What's some of the differences when you're running, you know, full on, you know, ugly in the US versus ugly in Britain and actually be in two markets? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, things have changed with the UK and Europe in the, last, in the last month. So the EU is obviously similar size, if not slightly bigger economically than the US, but it's very complex. And so, you know, the cultures, the languages, the travel is much different to the US. And the US is, despite there being differences regionally, it's just very different. So I think the first thing is just the sheer scale of this market in the US changes many factors. In the UK, shipping is cheap because stuff's only driven the size of New York State around, you know. So shipping's cheaper, Employment laws are different. I think that's been a big thing that's different in the two countries in that, you know, just the timings, the, the flow of hiring people is much faster in the US. And then I think the investor base and the investment community and the size of the opportunities in the US is far bigger. There are a lot more routes to raise capital and they're the size of the prize in terms of the volume that you can get to in the US versus the UK is just so much bigger. That I think lots of ideas that uh, in the UK, given there's only nine Whole Foods stores, you have to kind of get get to mainstream retail quite quickly. In the US, there being 400, 500 whole food stores, you can build a pretty big business in the natural channel. And I think that means that, that there's different pressures on these startups at different stages. And so for me, in the UK, you kind of have to be mainstream ready a lot faster than you do in the US, certainly when you're building a category. And I think for us building Seltzer for the first time in the UK, that's something we've been working through. And I think there are big differences between the two markets. This market is probably the best place to build a food and beverage business or any consumer product business, you know, certainly with direct to consumer too, that it's really democratized how brands can get to market, which is really exciting. And then obviously there's just so many people here who are interested in new brands interested in new products, new trends, and I think a market where people will get behind those ideas is and it's just such it makes it such an exciting place to be. I would love the UK to have more and more of its amazing brands and amazing entrepreneurs expand to markets like the US because I think the UK has these concepts and brands but sometimes they don't get the chance to expand this way because it is complicated. Um, for many reasons. Talk to me a little bit about why you believe, because I know you mentioned this a few times about how the US market is really the ideal place to build a brand. And I was talking to a couple investors about how, you know, US brands globally mean so much to people that it is in terms of just being able to export that brand as well. But I love just to learn what makes the US market just so, so incredible to grow a beverage company. Yeah, I, I think it's consumer led, really. I think the consumer here, like I just said, is is interested, interested in brands. I think 
the culture here has been built around brands and built around the philosophy of, you know, a, taking a certain pride in being entrepreneurial. It's in the DNA of this country. People get behind entrepreneurs and founders, and it's part of what this country has been built on. Kind of realistically, everyone that ever moved to America was taking a chance. So all the generations of people in this country, kind of in their family tree somewhere, is someone who took a chance to get here, right? And that that is in the DNA DNA of this country. And I just think that creates an environment where people want you to succeed and want you to do well. And I think it trickles down to consumers, to investors, to retailers who want to give new things a chance and are excited to be part of it, like nowhere else on the planet. And I think um, that's what makes this country so special. It doesn't. This country has many challenges, as we all know, but it's, you know, even the, even an entrepreneur can become president, allegedly, right? But I think where it is very special in food and beverage is that entrepreneurs can have ideas very quickly, test them with consumers who are interested, will give feedback get behind them. And yeah, just it just makes it a great place to launch a business ultimately. Yeah, I totally agree. I think for all those reasons that you said in terms of why the US is such a compelling place to start a food and beverage business, because ultimately it comes back down to the consumers, right? And consumers being interested, excited, passionate about new brands, especially, I mean, in your brand, of course, is very, very much falls into this in terms of uh, the wellness consumers wanting to have healthier products, which has been a trend that's been now for a few years. But it's just a very exciting place when you have consumers really care about what's actually entering into their bodies. So talk to me a little bit about the fundraising process. Why did you decide to fundraise? What was the need? And what was your fundraising strategy? Yeah, so very early on, there's no fundraising strategy. So Joe and I blowing our blowing any savings we'd made from our jobs. And I think we were kind of let's get a website up. It's like, okay, you pay for that. I'll pay for like that I, I need to pay rent this week. So next week I'll pay for the flavor development costs. So we really kind of bootstrapped the first six to 12 months of the business. We then did a, you know, we needed to do a production run and ultimately with beverages, when you get to a certain size, you need to do a production run size. You need to, and, you, and unless you built a relationship and have credit, you need to pay in advance for whatever you make. And because Joe and I were two guys in our early twenties with dodgy email addresses and dodgy haircuts, we needed to raise capital to really get going. So we did a family and friends round very early on to get the thing going bootstrap the first year or so and actually interestingly we met some of our investors whilst doing demos in stores so we were doing demos we're obviously very passionate we didn't know the people we were pitching we got some emails we were in the uk we always had that dream of moving to the us and some of the investors we met said you guys are onto something here would you consider you know launching this overseas and obviously joe and i jumped at the chance to do it with them uh, people who've been there and done it and so that kind of begun to move those things forward. We wanted to build a big business. We wanted to build a business that would solve a problem for a lot of people. We wanted ultimately to build a big business with very small margins early on, which is canned beverages. So it needed to be funded. And we were lucky enough along this journey to meet a bunch of people that share that same vision and have backed us to continue to build that business. But very much early on, I couldn't even talk, I couldn't have told you what Series A was or Seed or any of these things. I mean, we were just trying to sell cans and cases and trying to build a brand that people loved. And, you know, through that process, we've we've managed to connect with some great people and uh, now have investors in the UK and the US. So that's been like really interesting part of it as well. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation I heard and I'm going to forget I forget the founders, but they're in the food space. And it was a panel discussion that I heard and the investment bankers came crawling 
to see, you know, about potential sales or or what have you. And the founders like just they actually had to meet like the salespeople, not the founders, because the founders were just so busy just focusing on the business that they didn't even think about, you know, the investment banking or like or like any of that type of part of the business. And so no, that's super cool. I don't think your podcast was around at the time. So if it happened, <laughs> maybe we would have raised May's money earlier, but here we are. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And I'm super excited to interview one of your investors. Jamie Schmidt. So that'll be super fun. Yeah, we've we've met some amazing people on the ride. It's crazy to think that started this in like essentially my front room, my bedroom in, in London. And we have someone like Jamie who lives in Portland with the success she's had invested in our business and believe in the vision. So we're very lucky to have a amazing group of investors that have spotted hopefully the passion and the of the team and the, the vision for the problem we're trying to solve and get behind what we're doing. So uh, yeah, that's that's kind of pretty humbling. Of course, of course. Yeah, no, she's terrific. She's absolutely terrific. Yeah, she's a rock star, yeah. So what's one thing that you would change about the fundraising process? Well, it's a really good question. I think the whole kind of pull together a deck and tell your story on slides is great and also very challenging. And I think like I, I've read stories of some people raising without a deck. I do think a deck is a simple way, but I do think I've always found that a really challenging way of just summing up your business. And I think a lot of people make decisions purely off those things sometimes, which is fine. But I would love to democratize things a little bit more as well. I think I'm privileged in the sense that I am white, male, uh, pretty well educated from the UK. So like a kind of, you know, one when I'm, you know, just by virtue of where I was born and the background I have. And I think, you know, a lot of the investors we've been introduced to have come through introductions of people I've known and like, I'm lucky to have that. And I do think democratizing in ideas and how they're funded for me would be big. I know in the UK, crowdfunding has been very big since its inception. I know in the US, things are slightly more complicated on, on crowdfunding, but I... I do think ideas and uh, should be measured on their merit. And I think more and more people from different backgrounds should have access to different types of capital. So that's what I would change because I think a lot of it is like, who do you know? How do you know them? How do you get an introduction? That starts the process. And I'm lucky that we've been able to get that quite a few times. But, you know, I've seen so many great ideas through my journey that didn't get funding for whatever reason. I, I just think that if I was going to change the fundraising process, democratizing it somehow would be what I would do. Because I think there's so many ideas that never see the light of day that would solve problems for consumers that aren't necessarily represented by the investor base as well, or the traditional investors. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, on both points, first diversity and access, and then as well as the deck. Funny story about the deck, when I had on Mike Duda, because I know we were talking about Peloton earlier, he was saying how Peloton had a really hard time fundraising because they had a PPM, they didn't have a deck. Investors were like, oh, well, they don't have a deck. We're not going to back this company or, or think that it's interesting. They should have just sent Pelotons out, right? They should have. They should have just sent bikes to everyone probably to raise the money quickly, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. I guess you also have that same problem though in Beverage too, where since it's a physical product, trying it is so important that how can you actually, you know, show that in a deck? It's very, very difficult, right? Yeah, it, it's challenging and I don't know, I haven't come up with a solution to it yet, but it's a funny process putting it together. You see lots of other decks, there's a formula. Maybe that is the best way Way to digest that information for people who see lots of that, lots of those sorts of things. But as an entrepreneur who has to put them together, it's like, okay, cool. How do I sum 
summarize my, like pretty much what I've done every day for a decade into like 15 slides and tell somebody how special what we're doing is without doing 100 slide presentation to explain every nook and cranny that I'm excited about. I find that really difficult. Right. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I also totally agree with you on the diversity front. There certainly needs to be a more like a democratization or better access in order yeah. that gender, diversity, all backgrounds, you know, there's consumers of all walks in life that have problems that need solving by entrepreneurs of all walks in life. And I don't think everyone always gets a fair shot at getting capital. Totally agree with you there. Totally agree with you. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Oh, there's so, I mean, I'm an avid reader. I think The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, I think is a book on stoicism, but it's a great introduction to stoicism. And I recommend that. I'd say profession, that would be the book that inspired me professionally because being a founder is nonstop dealing with obstacles. And, you know, even this week, we're facing a bunch of stuff with all sorts of things in our business, despite, you know, this problems just change. I think learning to deal with problems and using stoic philosophy is very valuable to any, you know, anybody in any job, in any walk of life. We, life is hard, right? Stuff's going to happen. And I think when coronavirus hit, I, I had already been practicing that kind of stoic philosophy being a founder for four or five years. So kind of in my head, oh, here's another obstacle. Didn't knock our business out of kilter too much because I was like, well, of course this has happened. Like, <laughs> So how are we ready for it? What are we going to do about it? So I recommend that. Personally, I mean, there's so many books going through my head, but there's a book, um, Give and Take by Adam Grant, who's a uh, professor. Somebody else recommended it to me, a surf instructor actually in the UK recommended it to me. And I think one of his celebrity clients had recommended it to him. So I was like, cool, I'll read it. And I just think that notion of giving and taking in life is really interesting and certainly giving help where it's needed, being kind to people, not expecting stuff in return. I think it's been a big part of life for our company. I think Ugly's always tried to help other people up the ladder because we had so much help up the ladder ourselves. And I think that's a good philosophy for life in general and that just giving without expecting stuff in return. Um, and that book's really interesting. I think talking about that, you know, I could list off so many books that have been helpful for me personally, but those two come straight to mind for me. No, that's great. That's great. We haven't had The Way yet on the website, so really excited to add that. I think we've had a couple folks mention Give and Take, so you're one for two in terms of being original. <laughs> okay. Well, I think he has a book on originals as well, so maybe I should have read that one. I don't know. Answer. Originals is great. Originals is great. I read originals. <laughs> I'm just playing around here. But no, no, no. That's really interesting. The way, also I have to read that. My wife's been reading, I don't know what the book's called, but it has one piece of stoicism every morning. The Daily Stoic, I think it's called actually. So she reads that every morning and, and I read it sometimes, but I'm not nearly as good with her with being consistent at reading it. So I still struggle with that every day, but quite often in our business, the problems actually end up leading to solutions that you'd never spotted. The limited editions thing I mentioned earlier, without coronavirus having us all stay at home, maybe we'd never have come up with that idea that's actually spawned, like you said, lots of exciting stuff too. So what they say, it's like, use the problem like a judo move, use the weight, use the weight of the problem to spin into something else. Not always easy. Quite often late nights and straight and like, it's a lot of stress. Uh, keep centering yourself on that idea and trying to center yourself on that idea. I think it's been a big thing for me professionally and personally. Totally. Totally. I love that. I love that. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? No pressure. Had a lot of good advice, a lot of bad advice over the years. Buying Bitcoin at all time high. No, I'm joking. I got that <laughs> advice last week. I didn't follow it. 
But um, that might actually end up being good advice. We'll find out. But uh, <laughs> last week, hasn't it? No, I think um, it's not anybody specifically's advice. And, and the quote gets attributed to so many people. I think it usually ends up with Mark Twain, but it is, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I think that's not something I consciously think about. But over time, I've always, you know, really thought about, Am I in the right environment to be successful? Are the people who are around me looking out for me and be, you know, wanting the best for me? And am I looking out for them? And I think slowly as you go through life, you can get move into very positive environments. You can also move into negative environments. I think being very conscious of how lucky you are or if something needs to change has been really strong advice because I think it's, you know, coming from a small village in the middle of England, I've, you know, been able to learn off a lot of different people by having that philosophy of like, am I spending time with people who are pushing me positively and encouraging me to achieve my best? And so I think that's always great advice for people to really, you know, consider certainly young people, I think, you know, because it's very easy to get dragged into different directions and thinking about who you're spending your time with. And if that's going to help you become the person you want to become, I think it's been big for me personally. No, I love that. I love that. It's almost having awareness for your space, right? And who's around you. Totally. And honestly, sometimes I've got caught up in different cycles and and sometimes you get carried away certainly when i was young as a young founder you can get distracted by the wrong sort of lifestyle or the wrong sort of way of running your business and i think being really aware self-aware to actually go actually something needs to change here is a massive skill for a lot of people yeah i totally agree but my final question for you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders oh this i mean i could go on all day we could do another hour on this i think um the biggest thing i've learned is is to look after yourself um i know that sounds so cliched but i've learned it the hard way i went out when i was running initially first learning to run the business in the us and the uk i totally burnt myself out i wasn't exercising i wasn't eating properly probably drinking more than i should have been at the time i was like flat like flying back and working not resting properly and it really burnt me out and it took me a long time to get over burnout and it, i was someone who'd kind of been a metronome working non-stop for you know seven eight years and i never thought i'd be the person that would catch up with me and it's kind of silent and it'll hit you and it, since coronavirus, I've you know focused much more on my health. I focus much more on physical health, emotional health, you know, mental health. Whether it's getting therapy, getting coaching, investing in yourself as an entrepreneur. You know, I always think about if you think about professional tennis player, for example, they will have a fitness coach, a masseuse, they'll have a, a sports psychologist, and they build a real support team around them. And I think I put myself on an island almost as an entrepreneur. I'd gone, I can do all this myself. I can solve all these problems myself. But it really caught up with me. And I think uh, over the last 12 months really focusing on you know they always say put the oxygen mask on yourself before you help others but it's so true in a in a company and with your loved ones around you when those relationships start fraying you can really start looking at yourself or whether you're taking responsibility for those things and as a founder you're going to be somebody who's like passionate about your idea you want to work on it all the time but you're going to get the best out of yourself if you really look after yourself and, and if you're in this for a marathon which is most likely to be 5 10 15 years of running this business you really need to take care of yourself so I learned that the hard way, but um, it's serious advice and something I think everyone should talk about as much as they can, physical and mental health t- with for entrepreneurs and founders and, and even venture capitalists who have also have similar stresses and strains. I think it's, it's a big part of where I think the whole industry needs to start talking, talking about more. 
I think that's extremely well said. And I also appreciate how, you know, holistic your answer was. I mean, I have a sign at the front of my door that just says, be kind to yourself. Like, cause some days you feel like, God, I was so busy, but what the heck did I do? You know what I mean? And, and especially now with like Zooms back to back and you're like, when did I agree to all of these things? Right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <gasps> What's my schedule? Wait, this is my schedule. Yeah. What? How did, how did this person get on my calendar? <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. yeah, no, totally. And so I think it's just really important to, uh, I guess, have that awareness and make sure that, okay, you know, I mean, like, I feel like I have days that, that just get away from me, you know, all the time, but it's important just to kind of realize that happens sometimes. Totally. I mean, I guess that's not business advice as such, but I honestly think it's the best business advice there is because, you know, if your business fails or your business isn't going well, but you're looking after yourself and you're mentally strong and you're physically looking after yourself, you know, it's not life and death to start up, right? It's just a startup. People are risking capital, but it's just capital that's there to be risked. Don't put yourself in harm's way just for the sake of, of that. And I think it's good advice. Yeah, I think it's also just to expand on that. I think it's also important to separate yourself, maybe give yourself boundaries as well to your business too, right? Of course, it's your baby. This is your pride and joy. But at the same time, it's not the everything right? Certainly when you get more time zones like we have now, you can, you can write an email and get a reply pretty much any time of the day now at Ugly. So if you don't have those boundaries, and early on when I first moved here, I was waking up in the morning and obviously had an inbox full from the UK office. I'd just get straight to work and I did that. You can get away with it for six months. You can get away with it for 12 months and then it just catches up with you and it's so silent and you don't see it coming but then, you know, the effects of it can be big. So like really putting in those boundaries is, is important. I agree. Totally, totally. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I'm an avid listener to this podcast, so it's a privilege to be invited. Uh, all of the previous episodes I've loved, so appreciate you having me on. And there you have it. It was simply terrific having Hugh on. You can follow Hugh at UglyHugh on Twitter. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Thanks.